0: When is a rape not a rape? In a fair world, the subject should be black and white. The victim doesn't consent, hence rape. But in England, in the early 1970s, saw a most peculiar case presented for appeal, and it's still debated by students of law today. In today's episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast, we look at the case of the Crown v. Collins. Hi, and welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. I don't normally touch cases of rape. I find them unspeakable crimes, and I won't even mention what I would have done to offenders if I ruled my own independent nation of Stevie Land. It's perhaps one of the most inhumane acts that humans can inflict on each other, but before we take my perhaps draconian views into the matter we should look at these two cases and excuse my Italian pronunciation in the following story it's just as good as my Japanese Franco Viola was born in Sicily in 1948 in 1963 at the age of 15 she became engaged to 23 year old Filippo Melodia who was on the fringes of the mafia after Filippo was arrested for theft, Franca's father ordered to call off the engagement which she complied with in nineteen sixty five Filippo had moved to Germany, and Franca had become engaged to another man, but for the jealous Filippo, he tried to get her back unsuccessfully. He then took matters into his own hands, on the twenty sixth of december nineteen sixty five he and a gang of armed men stormed Franca's family home and kidnapped her. She was taken to a farmhouse, and for the next week, the virgin Franca was raped repeatedly by Filippo. He told her that she would now be forced to marry him or become a dishonoured woman, according to the customs of Sicily. When she replied, she would have him sued for kidnap and rape the family heads got together to try and arrange a passiata Sicilian for appeasement. When Franca was released, her kidnappers were arrested. Filippo asked Franca again for a matrimonio repartore or a rehabilitation marriage which would automatically cancel his charge and save her from being labelled an una donna svergonata or a shameless woman, because she had sex but was unmarried. This was possible because under Article 544 of Italy's Rocco Code, which was developed under a fascist regime, an accusation of sexual violence could lap if the perpetrator married his victim. In the 1960s, Sicily was a regressive place for women, with many archic traditions, and honour-obsessed families. And to this end, Francas' family were abused, with their vineyard and barn being burnt. But the trial went ahead, with Filippo being sentenced to ten years in jail. He was released in 1976, and killed in a mafia-type execution two years later. In Italy, the law where a rapist could vacate their crime by marrying their victim was abolished in 1981. Franca married an accountant that she'd known since childhood and they would have two sons and a daughter. At the time of recording, Franca is still alive and lives in the same village. But from one absolute heroine to the worst type of female. In 2017, Gemma Beale was jailed for ten years for falsely accusing men of raping her. She claimed that she'd been sexually assaulted by six men and raped by another nine. Her web of lies had led to a conviction for the first man she had accused being jailed for seven years in 2010. Sadly, this case tainted the suffering of genuine rape victims. But one of the most bizarre rape cases was first heard in 1971 with the accused being found guilty. But it is to his appeal that makes the whole court transcription fascinating reading and divides legal opinion to this day. I will let you make up your own mind on the Crown v. Collins. Lord Justice Edmund Davis This is about as an extraordinary a case as my brethren and I have ever heard on the bench or whilst at the bar. Stephen William George Collins was convicted of burglary with intent to commit rape on the 29th of October 1971 at Essex Assizes and he was sentenced to 21 months' imprisonment. He's a 19-year-old youth and he appeals against the conviction by the certificate of the learned judge. The terms in which that certificate is expressed reveals that the learned judge was clearly troubled about the case and the conviction. Let me relate the facts. Were they put into a novel or portrayed on a stage, it would be regarded as being so improbable as to be unworthy of serious consideration and verging at times on farce. At about two o'clock in the early morning, Of Saturday, the 24th of July of last year, a young lady of 18 went to bed at her mother's home in Colchester. She'd spent the evening with her boyfriend. They'd taken a certain amount of drink, and it may be this fact that affords some explanation into her inability to answer satisfactory certain crucial questions put to her. She has the habit of sleeping without wearing night apparel, in a bed which is very near the lattice-type window of her room. At one stage of her evidence, she seemed to be saying that her bed was close up against the window, which, in accordance with her practice, was wide open. In the photographs, which we have before us, however, there seems to be a gap of some sort between the two, but the bed was clearly very near the window. At about... 3.30 or 4 o'clock she awoke and she saw in the moonlight a vague form crouched in the open window. She was unable to remember, and this is important, whether the form was on the outside of the windowsill or the part of the cell which was inside the room, and for reasons which will become later clear, that seemingly narrow point is of crucial importance. The young lady then realised several things. First of all, that the form in the window was that of a male. Secondly, that he was a naked male. And thirdly, he was a naked male with an erect penis. She also saw in the moonlight that his hair was blonde. She thereupon leapt to the conclusion that her boyfriend, for whom for some time she'd been on Terms of regular and frequent sexual intimacy, was paying her an ardent nocturnal visit. She promptly sat up in bed, and the man descended from the cell and joined her in bed, and they had full sexual intercourse. But there was something about him which made her think things were not as they usually were between her and the boyfriend. The length of his hair, the voice as they exchanged what was described as love talk and other features led her to the conclusion that somehow there was something different. So she turned on the bedside light and saw that her companion was not her boyfriend. So she slapped the face of the intruder, who was none other than the appellant. He said to her, give me a good time tonight, and got hold of her arm, but she bit him and told him to go. She then went to the bathroom and he promptly vanished. The complainant said she would not have agreed to intercourse if she had known that the person entering her bedroom was not her boyfriend. But there was no suggestion of any force having been used upon her, and the intercourse which took place was undoubtedly effected with no resistance on her part. Collins was seen by the police about 10.30 later that same morning, According to the police, the conversation which took place then elicited these points. He was very lustful the previous night. He had taken a lot of drink. And we may here note that drink, which for him is a very real problem, had brought this young man into trouble several times before, but never for an offence of this kind. He went on to say that he knew the complainant, because he'd worked round the house on this occasion, desiring sexual intercourse, and according to the police evidence, he added that he was determined to have a girl by force if necessary, although that part of the police evidence he challenged. He went on to say that he walked around the house, saw a light on an upstairs bedroom, and he knew this was the girl's bedroom. He found a stepladder, leaned it against the wall and climbed up and looked in the bedroom. What he could see inside through the wide open window was a girl who was naked and asleep, so he descended the ladder, stripped off all his clothes, with the exception of his socks, because apparently he took the view if the girl's mother entered the bedroom, it would be easier to effect a rapid escape if he had his socks on him than if he was in bare feet. That is a matter about which we are not called upon to express any view, and would, in any event, find herself unable to express one. Having undressed, he then climbed the ladder, pulled himself up onto the windowsill, his version of the matter that he was pulling himself in when she awoke. She then got up and knelt on the bed, she put her arms around his neck and body, and she seemed to Pull him into the bed. He went on. I was rather dazed because I didn't think she would want to know me. We kissed and cuddled for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then I had it away with her, but found it hard because I'd had so much to drink. The police officer said of the appellant, It appears that it was your intention to have intercourse with this girl by force if necessary, and it was only pure coincidence that this girl was under the impression that you were her boyfriend, and apparently that is why she consented to allowing you to have sexual intercourse with her. It was alleged that he said then, Yes, I feel awful about this. It is the worst day of my life, but I know I could have been worse. Thereupon, the officer said to him, and he challenges this, What do you mean, you know it could have been worse? To which he is alleged to have replied, Well, my trouble is drink, and I got frustrated. As I told you, I only wanted to take it away with a girl, and I'm glad I haven't really hurt her. Then he made a statement under caution, in the course of which he said, When I stripped off and got up on the ladder, I made my mind up that I was going to try and get it away with this girl. I feel terrible about this now but I had too much to drink. I am sorry for what I have done. In the course of his testimony, Collins said that he would not have gone into the room if the girl had not knelt on the bed and beckoned them into the room. He said that if she had objected immediately to his being there or his having intercourse, he would not have persisted. While he was keen on having sexual intercourse that night, It was only if he could find someone who was willing. He strongly denied having told the police that he would, if necessary, have pushed over some girl for the purpose of having intercourse. There was a submission of no case to answer on the grounds that the evidence did not support the charge, particularly that ingredient of it that he had referenced to enter into the house as a trespasser but the submission was overruled, and as we have already related, he gave evidence. Now one feature of the case, which remained at the conclusion of the evidence in great obscurity, is exactly where Collins was at the moment when, according to him, the girl manifested that she was welcoming him. Was he kneeling on the cell outside the window, or was he already inside the room? having climbed through the window frame and kneeling on the inner cell. It was a crucial matter, for these were certainly three ingredients that it was incumbent upon the Crown to establish, under Section 9 of the Theft Act of 1968, which renders a person guilty of burglary if he enters any building or part of a building as a trespasser and with the intention of committing rape. The entry of the accused into the building first must be proved. Well, there is no doubt about that, for it is common ground that he did enter this girl's bedroom. Secondly, it must be proved that he entered as a trespasser. We will develop that point a little later. Thirdly, it must be proved that he entered as a trespasser with the intent at the time of entry commit rape therein. The second ingredient of the offence, the entry must be as a trespasser, is one which has not, to the best of our knowledge, been previously canvassed in the courts. Views as to his ambit have naturally been canvassed by textbook writers, and it is perhaps not wholly irrelevant to recall these who were advising the Home Secretary before the Theft Bill was presented to Parliament had it in mind to get rid of some of the frequently absurd technical rules which had been built up in relation to the old requirement in burglary of a breaking and entering. The cases are legion as to what this did or did not amount to, but happily it is not now necessary for us to consider them It was in order to get rid of these technical rules that a new test was introduced, namely that the entry must be as a trespasser. What does that involve? According to the learned editors of Archbold, 37th edition, paragraph 1505, any intentional, reckless or negligent entry into a building will, it would appear, constitute a trespass if the building is in the possession of another person who does not consent to the entry, nor will it make any difference that the entry was the result of a reasonable mistake on the part of the defendant so far as trespass is concerned. If that be right, then there would be no defence for this man to say, and even were he believing in saying, well, I honestly thought that this girl was welcoming to enter her room and therefore I entered, fully believing I had her consent to go in. If Archibald is right, he would nevertheless be a trespasser since the apparent consent of the girl was unreal. She was mistaken as to who was at the window. We disagree. We hold that, for the purposes of Section 9 of the Theft Act, A person entering a building is not guilty of trespass if he enters without knowledge that he's trespassing, or at least without acting recklessly as to whether or not he is unlawfully entering. A view contrary to that of the learned editors of Archibald was expressed in Professor Smith's book On the Law of theft, 1st edition, where, having given an illustration of an entry into premises, The learned author comments, It is submitted that D should be acquitted on the grounds of lack of, though under the civil law he entered as a trespasser, it is submitted that he cannot be convicted of criminal offence unless he knew of the facts that caused him to be a trespasser, or at least was reckless. The matter has also been dealt with by Professor Grew, who in paragraph 405, of his work on the Theft Act has the passage. What if D wrongly believes he's not trespassing? His belief may rest on facts which, if true, would mean he was not trespassing. For instance, he may enter a building by mistake, thinking it is the one he's been invited to enter. Or his belief may be based on a false view of the legal effect of the known facts. For instance, He may misunderstand the effect of a contract granting him a right of passage through a building. Neither kind of mistake will protect him from tort liability for trespass. In either case, then, D satisfies the literal claim of Section 9.1 as he enters as a trespasser, but for the purposes of criminal liability, a man should be judged on the basis of the facts as he believed them to be and this should include making allowances for a mistake as to the rights under civil law. This is another way of saying that a serious offence like burglary should be held to require, in the fullest sense of the phrase, D should be liable for burglary only if he knowingly trespasses or is reckless as to whether he trespasses or not. Unhappily, it is common for Parliament to omit, to make clear whereas mens rea is intended to be an element for a statutory offence. It is also, though not equally, common for the courts to supply the mental element by construction of the statute. We prefer the view expressed by Professor Smith and Professor Grew as to that of the learned editors of Archibald. In the judgment of this court, there cannot be a conviction for entering premises as a trespasser within the meaning of Section 9 of the Theft Act unless the person enteringly does so knowingly that he's a trespasser and nevertheless deliberately enters, or at the very least is reckless as to whether or not he's entering the premises of another without the other party's consent. Having so held the pivotal point of this appeal, is whether the Crown established that this appellant at the moment he entered the bedroom knew perfectly well he was not welcome there or being reckless as to whether he was welcome or not was nevertheless determined to enter. That in turn involves consideration as to where he was at the time that the complainant indicated that she was welcoming him into the bedroom. If To take an example, that was to put the course of the argument her bed had not been near the window but was on the other side of the bedroom and he, being determined to have her sexually, even against her will, climbed through the window and crossed the bedroom to reach her bed then the offence charge would have been established. But in this case, as we have related, the layout of the room was different and it's been a point of nicety which had to be conclusively established by the Crown as to where he was when the girl made welcoming signs, as she unquestionably did at some stage. How did the learned judge deal with this matter? We have to say, regretfully, there was a flaw in his treatment of it. Referring to section 9, the learned judge said, There are three ingredients. First is the question of entry. Did he enter into that house? Did he enter as a trespasser? That is to say, did he was the entry? If you are satisfied there was an entry, intentional or reckless? And finally, you may think this is the crux of the case as opened to you by Mr Irwin. Are you satisfied that he entered as a trespasser? Did he have the intention to rape this girl? The learned judge went on to deal in turn with each of these three ingredients. He first explained what was involved in entry into a building. He then dealt with the second ingredient, but the learned judge here unfortunately repeated his earlier observation that the question of entry as a trespasser depended on was the entry intentional or reckless. We have to say. This was put in the matter inaccurately. This mistake may have been derived from a passage in the speech of the Crown Council when replying to the submission of no case. Mr Irwin at one stage said, Therefore, the first thing that the Crown have to prove, my Lord, is there's been a trespass, which may have been an intentional trespass or it may have been a reckless trespass. Unfortunately, the learned judge regarded the matter as though the second ingredient of the burglary charge was whether there had been an intentional or reckless entry, and when he came to develop this topic in his summing up, that error was unfortunately perpetrated. The learned judge told the jury, he had no right to be in that house, as you know, certainly from the point of view of the girl's parent. If you're satisfied about entry, did he enter intentionally or recklessly? What the prosecution say about that is you do not really have to consider recklessness because when you consider his own evidence, he intended to enter that house and if you accept the evidence, as I've just pointed out to you, he in fact did so. So at least you may think it was intentional. At the least, you may think it was reckless, because, as he told you, he did not know whether the girl would accept him. We are compelled to say that we do not think the learned judge, by these observations, made it sufficiently clear to the jury the nature of the second test about which they had to be satisfied before this young man could be convicted of the offence charged. There was no doubt that his entry into the bedroom was intentional but what the accused had to say was she knelt on the bed, she put her arms around me and then I went in. If the jury thought he might be truthful in that assertion they would need to consider whether or not although entirely surprised by such a reception being accorded to him this young man might not have been entitled reasonably to regard her action as amounting to an invitation for him to enter. If she in fact appeared to be welcoming him, the Crown do not suggest that he should have realised or suspected that she was so behaving so, despite the moonlight, that she thought he was someone else. Unless the jury were entirely satisfied that the appellant had made an effective and substantial entry into that bedroom without the complainant doing or saying anything to cause him to believe that she was consenting to his entering it, he ought not to have been convicted of the offence charged. The point is a narrow one, as narrow, perhaps, as a windowsill, which is crucial to this case. But this is a criminal charge of gravity, and even though one may suspect that his intention was to commit the offence charged unless the facts show with clarity that he in fact committed it, he ought not to remain convicted. Some question arose as to whether or not Collins could be regarded as a trespasser, ab initio, but we are entirely in agreement with the view expressed in Archibald, again in paragraph 1505, that the common law doctrine of trespass ab initio has no application to burglary under the Theft Act 1968. One further matter that was canvassed ought to have been mentioned. The point was raised that the complainant not being the tenant or occupier of the dwelling house and her mother being apparently in occupation, this girl herself, could not have in any event have extended an effective invitation to enter, so that even if she had expressly and with full knowledge of all material facts invited Collins in, he would nevertheless have been a trespasser. Whatever be the position of the law of tort, to accept such a proposition as acceptable in criminal law would be unthinkable. We have to say that this appeal must be allowed on the basis that the jury were never invited to consider the vital question as to whether this young man did enter the premises as a trespasser. That is to say, knowingly perfectly well, he had no invitation to enter, or reckless as to whether or not his entry was with permission. The certificate of the learned judge, as we have already said, demonstrated that he felt there was points involving calling for further consideration. That consideration we have given to the best of our ability for the reasons we have stated the outcome of this appeal is that this young man must be acquitted of the charge preferred against him. The appeal is accordingly allowed and his conviction quashed. And that, my dear listeners, is a case which is debated by law students in England, to this day. It was certainly a crazy case, and it certainly told me something. I would never want to work in law. My head hurts just reading those passages. I hope you enjoyed this one, and, till the next episode, bye-bye.